Welcome to So Dead, a podcast where we like to shatter your illusions about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. I'm Jen Carpenter. And I'm Danny Fairman. Happy True Crime Tuesday. And happy Taco Tuesday, Deadheads. Today. Today. Today, we're going to talk about times when those who were supposed to protect and serve didn't. Oh, I've got one. I've got one too, but let's hear your Shocking. First. <laughs> uh, in 1946, 25-year-old Clayton Smith was a rookie patrolman with the Lansing Police Department. Lansing is about zero miles from Lansing. It's right in the middle it's of right it. right in the middle. <laughs> anyway, uh, he was a World War II war veteran and a Purple Heart recipient. And like many of his fellow men and women in uniform, he joined his local police department shortly after returning from the war. His wife, 21-year-old Roxanne, was a stay-at-home mother to their two little boys, two-and-a-half-year-old Clayton Jr., who they called Butchie. 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 And three-month-old Jimmy. The young family lived in Roxanne's mother's home on East North Street, just a few houses down from the Turner Dodge house, actually. Cool. Uh, they lived with Roxanne's mother, Roxy, mm-hmm. and four of Roxanne's adult siblings. Wait, what? So you do that math. That is nine people, seven of them grown-ass adults what? in one house. Really? Mm-hmm. Clayton and Roxanne were saving up to buy their own house, um, so it was just temporary for them. Okay. August 22nd, 1946 was a normal day in the house. At one point, Roxy noticed her son-in-law's service revolver sitting carelessly on the china cabinet. Mm-hmm. She asked him if it was loaded, and he said no. I would imagine she kind of got after him. There are nine people in this house. Right. Your son could pick up that gun. Um, but he told her that it wasn't loaded. Right. At some point, Clayton and Roxanne took the boys upstairs to their bedroom. Clayton's shift would be starting soon, and he needed to get ready for work. A little while later, Roxanne took the baby downstairs so Roxy could feed him. Grandma Roxy was preparing a bottle for baby Jimmy when she heard her daughter shout from upstairs, You can't do that to me, you asshole. A few minutes later, there was a loud bang. No. Now, remember, nine people live in this house. So I'm pretty Jeez. sure there was plenty of yelling going on. Right. And that loud, unidentifiable noises. No. <laughs> unidentifiable? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and that loud, unidentifiable noises were not uncommon. But this time was different. Clayton came running down the stairs, service revolver in hand, and said, Oh, God, I did love her. I loved her so much. What? weird right that's super weird so when roxy asked what happened clayton informed her that her daughter his wife was dead roxy ran to the house next door and called her physician and a priest that's weird but have no fear one of the neighbors called the police oh well that's good yeah so when clayton's co-workers from the lansing police department arrived they found roxanne lying dead on her bedroom floor the left half of her face missing oh yeah so when a woman is murdered, we always say what? The husband did it. The husband did it. And mm-hmm. this case seems pretty simple, right? The husband yeah. obviously did it. Mm-hmm. Well, not according to the husband. Clayton claimed that his son, two and a half year old Butchie, Butchie. pulled the trigger. Yeah, he didn't. 
He said that when he stepped into the closet to put on his uniform, he heard a shot. He turned around to find his wife laying dead on the floor and Butchie holding his service revolver, which had been hanging on a holster from the closet door. The service revolver that, if you remember, he had told his mother-in-law just a little while Mm -hmm. earlier wasn't loaded. Wasn't loaded, right. So red Uh flag number one. Uh, Butchie began hysterically crying, shot mama, shot mama. That's so sad. I know. Um, But why in the world would a toddler pick up a gun and shoot his mother with it? Well, Butchie was a little boy in the 1940s with a police officer for a dad. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he had a toy gun that looked like daddy's and would run around shooting people with it. Not only that, but he'd just been to the Lansing Police pistol target range earlier in the day, where he sat on the sidelines and watched his father and other Hmm. officers practice shooting. Huh. So gun safety wasn't really a thing in the 40s. And when he saw his dad's gun just hanging on the door, he picked it up to play with it. So, I mean, that's plausible, right? I'm going to jump in here, though, and play devil's advocate. Because, of course, that sounds like bullshit. But uh, I remember my dad telling me a story. Go figure. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) He told you stories? (laughs) Uh, My dad told me a story once when I was a kid about a childhood friend of his that the family was out riding around. The kids Mm -hmm. were in the back of the pickup truck, as was done back in the 50s and 60s. Um, The dad's gun was just sliding around in the back of the truck. Um, my dad's friend was about five. He thought it was a toy, picked it up and shot his little brother in the face with it and killed him. So, Whoa. I mean, it could happen. happened. And it has happened since. Yeah. So the day after Roxanne's death, her mother visited the room where the, the murder slash shooting, I guess. What mm-hmm. are we calling it at this point? We don't the know. The killing. She right. was killed. Um, right where it had happened. She visits the room for the first time. She was accompanied by Clayton's mother, Lydia Smith. So both of the moms are in the room where the shooting occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Smith, Clayton's mother, found the white blouse that Roxanne had been wearing just before her death in baby Jimmy's crib. It was in tatters and looked as though it had been torn off of her body. Roxy, uh, so Roxanne's mother, turned the blouse over to police as evidence. I have questions. Why didn't the police find a torn up blouse when they were processing the crime scene? Did they process the crime scene? Right. And why didn't they notice that her body was shirtless? Was it shirtless? I mean, if he tore her blouse off of her, then why she would not have had a shirt on, right? Why did he tear her blouse off of her? Well, he actually admitted to that part, but we'll get to that in a minute. But I mean, just the... The fact that it was her mom the next day that found her torn off right. shirt in a in the baby's crib. Right. How did that get missed? And how did the fact that she was half naked get right. missed? That's right. so super weird to me. Um, so police were already doubting Clayton's story, and this just added more suspicion. Roxanne's blouse being ripped from her body does not fit into the narrative that this was an accidental shooting by a toddler. Authorities questioned Clayton relentlessly. There were only two witnesses to the shooting, him and Butchie, and a a two-and-a-half-year-old doesn't exactly make a reliable witness. Every time they questioned Clayton Sr., his story changed a bit. It was rumored that he was given multiple lie detector tests, but that was never confirmed nor denied. During the coroner's inquest, it was decided that Roxanne's death was an accident and Clayton was allowed to bury his wife. 
She was buried at Evergreen Cemetery in Lansing with a simple headstone identifying her only as wife. Stop Not mother, not daughter, not sister to seven fucking siblings, just wife. Wow. The police still weren't convinced that Roxanne's death was an accident, though, and they continued investigating quietly. On August 27th, 1946, they took Clayton Smith into custody and questioned him intensively for three days, trying to poke holes in his story, which was easy to do. At one point, he admitted that he was the one that pulled the trigger, although he maintained it was an accident. He then changed his story again and said that he only confessed to take that burden away from his son. Mm-hmm. On August 31st, Roxanne's body was exhumed so experts could examine the bullet wound and try to determine what angle the shot came from. Why? Right. Why did you not do that before you right. buried her? We're not talking about months later. We're talking about days. Days. August 22nd, she was killed. <laughs> August 31st, she's already been buried and dug back up. Like, so what, what is going on? Um, <laughs> later that same day, Clayton was charged with first-degree murder. His trial began in early December 1947 and lasted seven days. It was a mess. The prosecution called Roxanne's sister Mary as a witness. Mary testified that Clayton started making passes at her almost immediately after Roxanne's death and continued to act inappropriately toward her until the day he was arrested. She and two of her aunts testified that just three days after Roxanne's death, they were all in the kitchen eating because, you know, they all fucking lived together. That's so bananas. Um, When Clayton said, what about it, Mary? You'd make a good mother for Butchie and Jimmy. Yeah. What about it? That's such a dream come true for a proposal. The morning of Roxanne's funeral, Clayton allegedly asked Mary to go for a ride with him so they could... Go park and make mad love. Oh, my gosh. How gross. He is gross. Clayton vehemently denied these allegations. But being accused of proposing to his deceased wife's little sister just days after her death wasn't even the craziest thing that happened at the trial. No. (laughs) No. Nope. This Jerry Springer episode just keeps twisting. I like it. So the defense put three-year-old Butchie on the stand to demonstrate that he knew how to cock and fire his father's service weapon. He also testified that he shot Mama with Daddy's gun. No. He did. On December 10th, 1947, it took a jury of nine men and two women. Mm Mm-hmm. Less than three hours to return a verdict of not guilty. Clayton Smith was acquitted of all charges and awarded custody of his two young sons. So, wow! at this point in the story... They didn't let him keep living in that house. Right. He didn't have anywhere to fucking live, at least. (laughs) So at this point in the story, I'm still kind of like 75, 25. Really? Maybe even 70, 30. Okay. Like... I'm pretty sure this dick has gotten away with murder. Yeah. But there's just this little part of me that thinks the butchie story might be plausible. Until. The day after his release, the Lansing State Journal published an article about Clayton Smith's triumphant return home, complete with a photo of him and Butchie having breakfast together. This is a direct quote from the article. Boy. It's going to be a happy Christmas this year. In fact, every day will be Christmas from now on as far as I'm concerned, Clayton explained happily. What? Dude, 
you might be out of jail and you might have gotten away with murder. But your kids is but your wife just died four fucking months ago. Right. This will be your first Christmas without her. This is Butchie's first Christmas without his mom. Right. The baby's not going to ever remember her at all. Right. But Butchie yet, probably you wouldn't You enjoy either. your happy Christmas every day, you shit. That's gross. So here's where he lost me. Because mm-hmm. then it makes all that other gross stuff possible. Right. That he was accused of and was like, I would never. Yeah, you would. Because look yeah, what you, you just would. said. And said to the newspaper at right. that. Gross. It is gross. Um, so Clayton remarried less than three years after Roxanne's death. He had another child, a long career at the Oldsmobile plant in Lansing, and retired to Florida. He lived a long, happy life and died in a Lansing nursing home at 2014 at the age of 94. (laughs) In his very detailed obituary, there wasn't so much a mention of his first wife, the young, beautiful mother of his sons, who was gunned down in her own bedroom, either by him or by their toddler son because of his carelessness with his firearm. That's bonkers. Isn't that crazy? What Mm -hmm. do you think? Oh, I think he did it. You think you did it? For sure. I really was kind of on the fence until the Christmas quote. That got me. Yeah, I think he did it. I agree. (sighs) That makes me sick. I do. I have a story. All right. On February 23rd, 1947, 30-year-old Anthony McFarr, a former police officer and family man, entered Crothers Service Station on the corner of Mount Hope and Washington on Lansing's south side. Lansing is also zero miles from Lansing. (laughs) Still shocking. It was about 9 p.m. and 23-year-old war veteran Delmer Condor of Diamonddale was working the night shift. The exchange between the two men began pleasantly enough. They made small talk as Delmer prepared to close the shop for the night. By the end of the night, one of the men would be dead. Ooh. What happened? What happened? I don't know. I'll tell you. Well, tell I know, you but know. I'll tell you. You don't know. I'll tell you. Thank you. <laughs> In the 1930s, Anthony Fartro. Anthony what? Anthony Fartro. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fart. Row. Fartro. Fartro. I like to say Fartro. Okay. He probably did as well. Mm-hmm. He was on track to live a good life. He and his wife, Anne, had a daughter, Catherine, and were expecting another child. A boy. Mm-hmm. On August 16th, 1940, Anne and Catherine were returning home from a morning grocery shopping trip when Catherine slipped loose from her mother's grip in front of their apartment building and darted into the street. <gasps> Mm-hmm. She was run over by a street t- trolley and killed. Oh, no. Right in front of her mom. Mm. I know. The family was devastated, obviously. But a few months later, welcomed their son, Walter. Anthony joined the Detroit Police Department against his wife's wishes, and they tried to rebuild. Well, yeah, because, I mean, that yeah. is taking on such a risk and adding such a stress to one's life, mm-hmm. that line of work. And oh, yeah. if she's just watched this horrible thing happen to her daughter, she probably she has does not PTSD lose. and anxiety. Yeah. She and, does not want to lose another person. Exactly. Yep. Um, they even changed their last name from Fartro to McFar. Good call. <laughs> yeah, you can't be a cop with a last name like Fartro. Officer Fartro. Officer Farter. <laughs> no. Anyway, 
But it wasn't easy. They struggled within their marriage, and Anne struggled with her mental health. There was even talk of having Anne committed to a mental care facility. I mean. Many women. And she might have had, like, some postpartum. A postpartum from the new baby? Mm-hmm. PTSD from her daughter's death? No. I Ugh. mean, My heart my just aches for her. On September 22nd, 1942, Anne and Anthony got into an argument as he was getting ready to leave for work. She begged him to stay home. And as he walked out the door, she told him, you'll be sorry. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And she was right. Anthony returned home after his shift to a horrifying scene. 15-month-old Walter was dead in his high chair in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. His throat had been slashed with a butcher knife. I know. Anne lay on the floor nearby with a self-inflicted bullet wound to the head. Oh, my God. She was only 25. 25. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So was Anthony, though. This they they so were 25 sad. years old. He was 25. He, he loses his, his daughter. Family. Yeah. He loses his son and his wife and Ugh. finds them. I mean, his whole family in, like, such a tragic, gruesome way. Mm -hmm. That's awful. I know. He remarried quickly, and he and his new wife, Jean, had two children. But then Anthony lost his job with the Detroit Police Department due to calling in all the time. Which, yeah, he probably needed some inpatient therapy by that point in life. (laughs) Well, who wouldn't? Right. Right. Um, He and his wife became estranged. He began appearing as a semi-professional wrestler at carnivals. (laughs) That's quite a career change. Right? Um, And he moved to Dixon Trailer Camp in South Lansing. Weird. Mm -hmm. Anthony's family and friends feared he'd lost his mind. (laughs) It sounds like he definitely did. He probably did. did. Which, I mean, again, for good fucking reason. Right. Jesus. I know. I'm actually, like, it makes me sad. Yeah. So all of us brings us back. To the night of February 23rd, 1947, at Crothers Service Station. Anthony McFarr tells the clerk, Delmer Condor, that he missed the bus and needs to find a way home. He then asks Condor to make change for a 20. Condor's already put away the cash drawer by this time because, you know, he's trying to close the store and probably wishing this weird fucking dude would just hit the road. Like, <laughs> get, get out, out here, man. I want to go home. Right. Um, but because he was such a nice guy, maybe, and maybe because he just wanted McFar to leave so he could go home, he pulled the cash drawer back out and he went to make change. Okay. At this point, McFar pulls out a revolver from his pocket and says, Leave it there, mister. <laughs> Leave it there or I'll kill you. Get down on your hands and knees. <laughs> just like that in my just head. Just like that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Condor follows McFar's commands. He sets the cash drawer down and lays down on the ground. But remember, he is a war veteran. Right. He's a small dude, but he knows what to do. Okay. He sees that McFar is holding the gun in the air by the barrel, as if he's going to hit him with it. Ugh. Delmer Condor is not going to die on the floor of a gas station. So he yells, I can't do it here, and stands up. Can't do it here. Like, that's some... Ballsy. That's really ballsy. McFar then orders him outside. 
The bathrooms are located outside this gas station, but they're locked. Have you ever been to one of those gas stations? Yep. Listen, so I gotta pee when I gotta pee. I know. And they may be disgusting and I may like But you gotta have, go. I have to go and I have to go. Mm-hmm. I get it. I know people that won't use public restrooms and so they will like hold it until they get home. That's not an option. With for my me. job, I've gotten very accustomed to just I'm I would going die in the gas station. Yeah. I have gone to the bathroom in some shady mm-hmm. bathrooms. I have too. But you gotta go. Yes. Condor only has the key to the men's room. Which he pretends won't fit. So McFar tells him to go back inside the station and get the key for the women's restroom and to hurry up about it. <laughs> Condra goes back into the gas station alone to get the key. So he sees this as an opportunity. So when he grabs the key, he also grabs the nearest thing he can find to a weapon. A monkey wrench. I mean, those are solid. For sure. He slips it in his pocket. He steps back outside. And as he steps back outside, a car pulls up to the stoplight in front of the shop. So there's, it's still there. The stoplight's still there. Yes. I'm very familiar with this intersection. Uh Used to live about two blocks from it. Right. I Mm -hmm. used to go over there all the time. McFar turns to look at the car to make sure whoever is in it is not paying attention to what's going on. Condor seizes the moment. He bashes McFar in the head with the wrench. <sighs> but remember, McFar's a wrestler. Like, he's a big fucking dude. Right. Um, he's about 80 pounds heavier than Condor, and he's used to taking blows to the head. So this just, it doesn't knock him down. But it sure does piss him off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he punches Condor, knocking him to the ground. The fight is on between two men who have been professionally trained to fight and subdue. Condor, the war veteran and judo expert, jumps right back up and trips McFar, the former police officer and wrestler. I mean, that's the only way you're going to get him down, really. Yeah. And this is like, I mean, like you said, this is a fight. These are two men that are trained to fight. Yep. They're going at it. Like different types of fighting, but they're going yeah. at it. So McFar falls to the ground. Condor jumps on top of him and starts pounding him with both fists. He then grabs a two-by-four that's lying nearby and starts beating him with it. Condor is swinging with such force that the two-by-four snaps in half. That's crazy. That's nuts. But it's okay because McFarr is unconscious at this point. Condor picks up the gun and the $53, $53 that was stolen from the cash drawer so he takes that back. He grabs McFar by the collar and drags him back inside the service <laughs> station. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's I can just see it in my head. Right. He calls the police. Anthony McFar is rushed to St. Lawrence Hospital where he dies oh hours God. later. A coroner's inquest exonerated Delmer Condor of any wrongdoing on the grounds of self-defense. Even McFar's family was pushing for Condor to be acquitted because they understood that what happened that night was 100% Anthony's fault. Yeah, it was. Anthony McFar was 30 years old when he died. Aww. His estranged wife, Jean, was so disgusted by his actions that she refused to claim his body. I would, too. I know. Family members claimed the body instead, and Anthony was buried in Evergreen Cemetery in Lansing. Once a father, husband, and police officer who protected the streets... Anthony McFar died in disgrace 
a common criminal. Hmm. On his headstone, his name re- reads Anthony Fartro. <laughs> his name back. That's like mm-hmm. one last little jab. Yeah. That's wow. my story. I know. That's crazy. These were good stories. These were good stories. I mean, they were horrible because <laughs> right. people died, but right. they were interesting and they were Very both lo- both super local. local. I mean, all of our stories are local-ish, but these ones were both In home our town. for us. Right. I think it adds something to it when you can picture it, when you've yes. been to the location or you've been by it and you can perfectly picture yeah. where this has happened. Yep. It's crazy. Want to do file dump? Let's do it. So let's talk about our brushes with the law. <laughs> do you hopefully, hopefully neither of us have a whole lot to choose from. I have like none. You have none? I mean, I've been pulled over. I have one. I used to be a 911 operator. I mean, that's interesting. Uh-huh. For sure. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I don't have good I enough control of my emotions. I didn't do it very long because of my emotions. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I couldn't. So I've got one. Oh, boy. Don't worry, guys. I was a stupid teenager. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like sure last week or were. anything. Uh-huh. Let's hear. Um, so I was, I think, somewhere between eighth and ninth grade, maybe. So it was, what, 14? Okay. Um, And... I was hanging out with this girl that was a bad influence. You hanging out with a bad crowd? I can't even picture it. Are you being sarcastic? A little bit. Okay. I could see you probably <laughs> ran with like a yeah, naughty I crowd. Yeah, I got in some trouble. Um, but this was on a level that was dangerous. Looking oh, okay. back, um, you know, me and my friends, we pushed limits. Right. Um, she didn't have any. Oh. And so... Her dad had a collection of mopeds. Cool. Who yeah. collects mopeds? Her dad. He had oh. several. <laughs> I think he just bought them for her when she asked for them, honestly. What? Yeah. Wouldn't you um, be like, I just bought you a moped? You would think. Okay. You would also be like, don't leave here on that moped without a helmet. Um, but we wanted donuts one day and we really thought we looked way cooler without the helmets. Mm. So we rode on a moped up to quality dairy to get some donuts. And as we tried to leave a police officer who was also trying to get some donuts stopped us and was like, girls, no, give me your donuts. He took the donuts. He took the moped. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he took us back to her house. Now my house was actually closer, but you um, were scared but we of had shit, been, right? Yeah, and we had we were coming from her house. I had spent the night there. Um, had we been taken to my house, Dunzo, like I wouldn't have been allowed outside again that summer, right? Um, but we were taken back to her house, where her dad was just m- mad that the police showed up at his house. So oh. think of that, what you will. Yeah, um, but that was, was the only thing that upset him was that the police were there. He didn't really care that we had been real dumb and just driven a mile on mopeds at a high speed with no helmets. Um, so yeah, that was my brush with the law. Got taken in the back of a cop car. That's I felt kind of cool, not gonna lie. Weird, because of course we, you know, of course the story was different by the time we told our friends. 
Well, of course. And way more dramatic. Yeah. But it was a stupid fucking thing to do. It was very mm-hmm. dangerous. I'm glad that officer stopped us. I never right. got on a moped again after that. <laughs> um, just because I didn't want to wear a helmet, but I also didn't want to get put in a cop car again. So You didn't You didn't want to mess up your hair? Exactly. But you'd let the wind blow through it and get all well, greasy? Well, but you still look cool. With the helmet on, you just look like a do big you? dork. Well, I thought so. I mean, I was, not... Like, as an adult, no, you don't No, as an adult, people riding around without helmets on, like, no, Mm -hmm. they do not look cool to me. They look like they're in danger. Molly, you in danger, girl. That's what I want to say to them. I love that line. (laughs) My friend has a daughter whose name is Molly. You say that to her? All the time. I would. Molly, you in danger, girl. I, if I could read you parts of my life, I would have a daughter and name her Molly just so I could say that to her often. That's funny. I don't have, I seriously, like. Nothing ever? I've been pulled over. I had to take a DUI test. <laughs> and the whole time, which I passed, but the whole time I was like, my mom's going to kill me. My mom's going to kill had me. Had you been drinking? I had one drink. Okay. But I got pulled over because I went the wrong way on a one-way downtown. Those ways are tricky. They were super tricky, and it was late at night, and I was not familiar at the time with downtown Lansing. I'm so, still not familiar with downtown Lansing enough and now to they're not switching them, by a one-way. Yeah, now they're switching them all to two ways, Ugh. so now I'm going to be even more confused yeah. now that I've got it down. But, yeah. That was it? That was your that, biggest one? I'm afraid of uh, sobriety tests because I'm clumsy as shit. You, and I can't say the alphabet backwards. Who can? Uh, not me. And surely not drunk me. Right. Do you ever watch some of those Yeah, I feel videos, bad. Because I feel like if someone recorded me trying mm-hmm. to walk in a straight line, eyes open or closed, I couldn't do it. Because I'm clumsy as shit and I have no coordination. Right. And then I'm lucky if I can get the alphabet right going the right Forward. way on the first try. <laughs> right. I definitely can't do it backwards. Right. I know. That's how I feel, girl. So yeah, my I've been pretty vanilla and bland. Me too, except for the the helmet. Yeah, thing. I was gonna say that's not that's really. It's not, not bad. Yeah, we're not out it's there just like the one time I got thrown in the back. Breaking the car. law, breaking the no. law. No. All right. So. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon at SoDeadPodcast. You can find us online at SoDeadPodcast.com and email us your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. Now, get out there and shine. You magnificent what the fucks. <laughs> <laughs>